0: But you don't know me. Shut up and sit down.
1: Welcome back to You Don't Know Me, a podcast about people you don't know. I'm your host, Beeps.
2: I'm your co-host Groot.
1: And today we have a brand new guest on the show. We have Indiana Jones.
3: (laughs) The real life Indiana Jones.
1: Say hey to everybody.
3: Hello all, I am Indiana Jones uh, in in the living flesh here with you. Sounds just like Harrison Ford. (laughs) (laughs) I look just like him too, so everybody knows.
1: (laughs) Not single ladies, calm down, calm down. (laughs) So um, first things first, are you really like Indiana Jones?
3: (laughs) Uh, I'm an archeologist, uh, I can be considered a professional archeologist. I've been doing this since uh, late undergraduate and I, and I lived over in Israel, Palestine for uh, a couple years. Um, I worked on a number of projects over there. Uh, we don't fight Nazis usually, uh, you know, uh, Indiana Jones actually would have lost uh, every single research grant uh, imaginable. Uh, but I do work <laughs> in the Holy Land, I do deal with artifacts that have uh, connections to the Bible. Um, and uh, I work in some pretty deep history over there you know I mean over here in the States uh, something's old if it's uh, 200 years and over there they laugh at that I work in the Bronze Age uh, you know mm. 1800s BC is and oh, there is a oh, yeah. period that I've worked with a lot over there a couple years ago um, yeah exactly yeah. so it, it's a little while but uh, I, I, um, I got into this in, in kind of a weird way I um, I started studying the Hebrew Bible and religion early on in undergraduate because, you know, I wanted to study religion and philosophy for the money, so I, uh, I went that route. And then, of um, course. But Wonder. I started studying Hebrew Bible really early on. Um, um, I had vague aspirations to ministry earlier on in my life, and uh, a lot of that has changed. Uh, but I started studying Hebrew Bible, and... Uh, and quickly, I, I found that I, I, I suddenly knew more about Hebrew and, and about uh, the religion of Judaism as a whole than most American Jews. I myself am not Jewish, uh, but I uh, quickly found out that I knew enough about Judaism that I could probably uh, lie about being Jewish and go to Israel on birthright for free. Um, I ultimately decided against this not to lie and get the Jewish state and uh, and its philanthrop uh, people donating to it to... Uh, send me to Israel for free. So I went to Europe for my first time ever going abroad and got a URL pass, but I still had this kind of bug in the back of my head about uh, going to the Holy Land and I just had to see it. And so... Um, I ended up working at a site called, volunteering to work at a site called Ashkelon, which is just north of the Gaza Strip. Um, It goes Gaza Strip, military base, power plant, and then Ashkelon. And so Mm. uh, you get up on top of a hill in Ashkelon and and you can see into the Gaza Strip. Um, But also uh, Ashkelon is one of the um, ancient cities of of the Philistines, the Bible's bad guys. So I started off digging the Bible's bad guys. And uh, uh, and this is this is actually this is true you know and we can talk about what in the Bible uh, is historically accurate, what is not historically accurate what's I kind definitely of a gray area there but the Philistines existed and they are the Bible's bad guys um, but what's funny is that they' you know the term Philistine now has this connotation of uh, of well, like Neanderthal or something like that but they were actually uh, in some ways more cultured and advanced than the Judahites and the, and the ancient Israelites who were up in the hills. They were kind of the country bumpkins. The Philistines were actually in some ways more cultured uh, than them, mm-hmm. or, or at least it can be argued. Um, but I worked in Ashkelon because it's one of the most dynamic sites there. And when you're working at a site uh, in Israel, a, a tel, um is what they call it, it. It's an archaeological mound, meaning that the mound only exists because humans have been living there and doing human things for so long, for generations, uh, for thousands of years in the same spot. We, we don't have anything like this in, in North America. Where we have Native American archaeology, there's a site, and it exists, and then it's gone. But over there, you have different cultures and uh, uh, nations rebuilding again and again on the same spot. And I always compare to here in Atlanta. Um, we, uh, you know, we know about Atlanta being burned to the ground by Sherman and then built on top of that. Well, imagine Atlanta being burned to the ground and rebuilt again and again for four thousand years,
0: mm. and
3: that's what a tell would be like over there. Um, and Ashkelon is one of the largest and most complex over there where I worked. And as and as you work in it, it's like going through; it, it's a layer cake. And you start off; you're working; you're working your way back through history. Mm. Um, so you're going from modern period and uh, the Ottomans into uh, the Crusader Islamic period into the early Islamic period. Uh, from there, you get into the Byzantines, then the Romans, down to the Persians, from the Persians to the Iron Age, Iron Age Philistines, and then you get into the Bronze Age with the Canaanites, and it's just going back. Um, and it can, take, it can take decades to get down to the, uh, the biblical stuff, which is kind of a problem over there because sometimes people get a little too eager they want to jump straight into the biblical stuff. So.
2: so if your focus isn't on a certain time period and it's you're digging into that, trying to get to your own time period, what do you do if you're interfering with someone else's dig and you're like, oh no, we need to find this kind of stuff, but we actually
3: don't? Are you, yeah, are you
1: working like chronologically back through history, typically? or These
3: days in Israel, uh, they're pretty good about treating all historical periods equally. Mm. Um, and I'm actually friends with uh, the head um, Islamic archaeologist um, at Hebrew University. And these days, they're pretty good at treating all periods equally. But it used to be an, an issue, and, and it still can be at certain times today, of where it's sort of like, well, we have all this later Islamic crusader or, or late Roman Byzantine stuff, and we know that there's biblical-related uh, things or, or, or Bronze Age Canaanite things that we really like down there. So bring in the bulldozer and clear out everything on top to get down to the to the bottom. Um, that's not as much of a problem anymore, but it can go... Uh, that's
1: crazy, It though. can go every
3: which way, though, um, because I'm talking mainly about uh, archaeology and Israel proper. And when I talk about archaeology and Israel proper, I mean pre-'67 borders of Israel, areas that most people would not... Um, most reasonable people would would, would be alright with saying this is definitely part of the state of Israel. Mm. Um, but when you go into the West Bank, it can be a lot more nebulous. Yeah. You can have some digs that are sponsored by settlements. You can also have some digs that are uh, run by the Palestinian Authority. And they might go the opposite way of emphasizing Islamic periods and largely ignoring everything else. Mm. Um, and then in Gaza, it's just kind of a, a, a mess. Uh, there's there's a lot of other problems there. They're not thinking too much about uh, cultural heritage and history, um, but there is a museum there. Um, and uh, but. Looting is a problem everywhere, but so basically, you're talking about three distinct zones there between Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza, are, are kind of all um, a little bit different in the way that archaeology or lack thereof operates.
1: So I, I know that that is a personal interest to you that that yeah. um, region and that area and that that type of history in mm-hmm. particular. Um, but what are some other common places where you know you see a lot of what did you call them tells?
3: Tells. It's really that area, the Fertile Crescent. Um, I mean, the Levant. If, if you wanna call it. And up into Turkey, you're gonna have uh, some of that. Um, but you're talking, there really uh, isn't deep history like this anywhere else. There's other areas of the world that are cradles of civilization. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Indus River Valley and things like that. Um, but there's something about this region where the concentration in one mound, one area, pops up again and again. And it's interesting, too, that you can have things like, uh, um, between different cultures, religion, and cultic activity, let's say, quote unquote, taking place in the same spot again and again. And the temple changes. The temple gets destroyed or rebuilt. The gods change, but it's in the exact same spot
0: hmm.
3: again and again, that's even though the, the religion yeah. has has shifted. You know?
1: So why do you why do you think that's happening in that particular area?
3: There's something to that region. Um, I'm not a complete geographical determinist, but when we're talking about the Holy Land, we have to realize that um, you do have a sense living there, that you're at the center of the world, Mm. that uh, everybody is watching this place. And it is where geographically Europe, Asia, and Africa meet. Anybody passing from different ancient cultures up until the advent of air travel yeah, you had to go through here now you've probably heard of a, of a place already without even knowing it, you've heard of one of the most famous archaeological sites in the region of Israel-Palestine and that's Megiddo, also known as Har Megiddo, also known as Armageddon Mm-hmm. And uh, Armageddon is an actual place, and I, I've been there multiple times. It's actually really pleasant. And it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's a beautiful uh, national park. Can that be the title? Armageddon Israel. is actually it's actually a really a pleasant place. That's I hilarious. like it. I oh. like it a lot. Um, but uh, but what Megiddo is is because you have uh, two routes. If you wanted to go through Israel, basically, you could either go with ships along the sea and the, the the Eastern Mediterranean along yeah. the coast, hugging the coast. Or if you wanted to go by land, you're going to have to go through the Jezreel Valley. And the Jezreel Valley is the main land route through that area. And these days, Megiddo is also, it's always been at a border. And it's at the border these days between West Bank territory and Israel. But you had to pass the Jezreel Valley. And there's a bottleneck there. So that if you controlled Megiddo, you could control anybody going through land. Uh, through this area mm-hmm. and so you have a couple dozen cities buried one on top of the other
1: because they at megiddo the strategic because advantage. it was it
3: was mm-hmm. destroyed and rebuilt again and again and again mm-hmm. I mean there are certain pharaohs who said that they they would rather have uh, megiddo than a thousand other cities really? because it was that important and so part of my draw to the place and going back to your question of why there's this this concentration there of that this is a meeting place and always has been Mm -hmm. of multiple cultures and nations and conquering armies all for better or worse and you get an interesting mix of culture and interesting exchange of of ideas but you also get a lot of bloodshed and
0: uh yeah it kind of it
3: it, all of it is part and parcel there was even a battle at megiddo in world war one so really? it, it, it's like even up until the modern period,
0: yeah it's, there's yeah, it's site.
3: exactly. And so you have to think then that the New Testament writers them. Um, and John in particular, um, when he talks about Armageddon, everybody in his audience, you know, uh, first going on second century Jewish audience knew what Har Megiddo was,
0: mm-hmm.
3: knew what Armageddon was. And so you say Armageddon. And people there, they know what you're talking about. But then here in the Bible Belt and sort of a you know largely evangelical area, Armageddon has just become this concept. Mm-hmm. But if you were talking to Jews in Roman Palestine, and pardon me, and you said Armageddon, um, then they knew what you were talking about and they knew that if there's gonna be a battle to end all battles, a cosmic uh, or what have you battle that is the end of days, it's gonna be in this place and they really knew about it. And so they're drawing on imagery that was really real to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so anyway, in answer to your question, it's just that there's, there's a certain concentration in the Holy Land that that's unique to the world, definitely to the Western world, Yes, but, but unique to the world maybe period but definitely in terms of the western world our entire western world focus since ancient times has been on this place
1: yeah yeah we jumped straight into this
3: yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. anything
1: um go ahead
2: oh so i just my knowledge of (laughs) archaeology is very limited and i think it's Contained to Jurassic Park and knowing about paleontology with <laughs> yeah. like a tiny little brush and getting it into the t- by knowing know the difference,
3: you know more than a lot of people. Right, that I paleontology got that. and
2: archaeology are different things. I get that. <laughs> I I guess I just don't know what it looks like from your point of view. So when you're going to a site and yeah. you're looking for something, so I guess another question is, what are you looking for? But yeah. how do you actually extract it? So what tools do you have? What processes do you use to you know remove whatever it is whether it be like a bowl or a doll or I have no idea what you're looking for so that's yeah. the other question beyond that
3: yeah now this is the part where we really separate ourselves from a fictional indiana jones and we start talking a real life indiana jones mm. here and then the process of this but uh um there's a number of steps here. The thing is, like I was saying about these sites here, is that we've known what a lot of them are for a long time. Sometimes the name has been preserved into modern times. Sometimes it hasn't. Um, sometimes you have to go back to. Uh, you might talk to the local Arab population and find out what this hill is called in Arabic, because there might have a it might have a Semitic link. To something that it was called in the Iron Age, that's still preserved down to the generation. So sometimes we already know what a site is. Sometimes we have to figure it out. We might know from ancient documents and such that it's uh, it's it's um, that this site is in this area. It's likely this, and from what we're seeing here, it's on the surface. It it could be this, but um, so we basically first you have to determine this is a site. This is worth digging, and then you have to do all the scientific stuff of having funding to actually do that Mm -hmm. Uh, but the first thing you'll normally do is some type of survey and there's different ways to do this there's different methods in it but they all kind of boil down to walking around a site and picking up pottery whatever you find or maybe in some type of method doing test pits you might do a one meter by one meter circle in the ground and just pull that dirt out and sift all of it and see what comes up, um, and you'll get pottery and other things. I mean, you're, you're, this this little piece of pottery that I brought to you, I have a little piece of pottery here that I, I, I brought to our hosts. That's really that's, cool. uh, It's yeah. about from uh, I would put it somewhere around the eighth century BC uh, from the site that I, I worked at. It's so Like a few and years so, ago. Yeah, yeah, it was, okay. it was just it was just 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 yesterday, but. Uh, um, you know, you, all of these, even though the, the, these sites are in layers, with obviously the most recent on top and the oldest on the bottom, just because of erosion, weather, um, maybe humans digging stuff up and building there, um, you walk around any of these sites and you're gonna pick up hundreds, thousands of pieces of pottery. Mm-hmm. And you get an idea of what time periods are there. Maybe there are even- So you
1: literally just go around and pick up things that are not rocks. Exactly to determine, like, this is where we want to dig.
3: There's the lick test, too. If you pick up something and you're unsure if it's a rock or a piece of pottery, you lick lick it. it. You lick it. And uh, this is because... (laughs) Stones are not porous; they won't stick to your tongue. But a piece of pottery will stick to your tongue because pottery is porous. Does that stick Clay. to your tongue? Yeah, it will stick to your tongue a little bit. Oh my gosh! I so I've I've a eaten a good that. bit of, uh, of of dirt in my day, um, <laughs> and inhaled it and gotten in my lungs and in my eyes and everything.
1: Can we can we take a minute and just see if you, do you want to like the piece of pottery? You need
3: a piece of pottery. You don't need it in it? Yeah. I,
0: I did I did clean it I did clean
3: it you know.
2: <laughs> That's why you said it's porous. It's, so porous, it's porous. So okay, it'll it'll stick I'm a little do bit. A
3: video. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'll stick it's just weird. a little bit. now it's, it's like not gonna. It's not gonna be like you know, like like frostbite on a pole, but it'll stick a little bit more. you said, that. "How old is this? Eighteen hundreds BC. Oh, so almost. Cl- I mean, sorry, sorry. No, eight hundred BC. So you're pushing three thousand years. I'm gonna lick a three thousand year old <laughs> piece of pottery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it does. It does kind of stick, right? Because there's yeah. pores in it. Yeah. it's awesome. So, <laughs>
1: Sweet. Oh so that's, uh, yeah,
3: so, and I always tell volunteers that that's fun on day one, is that, uh, <laughs> uh, is that a rock won't stick to your tongue, um, a piece of pottery oh, will.
2: has a lingering taste.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's a little bit of Holy Land dirt still on there. Um, but so first you have to determine... Tasted
1: the Holy Land.
3: <laughs> so first you have to determine uh, where you want to dig and what your site's going to be. Mm-hmm. But then once you've actually determined, okay, this is an actual site... Then you have to actually determine what areas you're going to dig on. Now, it used to be back in the day, uh, during kind of more colonial times, uh, you always wanted to find the Acropolis where all the shiny things are and the statues and, and things like that and some colonialist archeologist would uh, get a bunch of Arab workers and he'd be in his pith helmet and he'd say, you dig there until you find shiny things and then they would. <laughs> and their methods were awful. Uh, they dug giant trenches and backfilled them and because and we're, we're, these days in modern archeology, span to get back to method here, we work via layers. We try to go down one layer at a time, going with the history of the place. Mm-hmm. Well, back then they used to do things like digging a gigantic trench that just cut through everything. Mm-hmm. Now a trench does have a certain advantage in that you can see in the profile of the trench on the sides, uh, kind of like if you took a cake and you cut it in half, you could see all the layers on the side. Yeah, you and so, see like maybe different And, and so you yeah. can see that, but you also do a lot of damage going down. We still sometimes use mm, variations on a trench in certain. Uh, uh, in certain situations. Mm -hmm. But the goal is to damage as little as possible. Because this is the thing, archaeology is a destructive science. When we dig these things, when we take them out of the ground, uh, we're destroying them. Mm -hmm. Like take the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. Uh, The Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, not too long ago, actually sponsored by Google they did this great project of digitizing all the Dead Sea Scrolls. Took oh, Google. High, yeah, high-res photos of everything. Uh, it's searchable online. It's an awesome database. That's really cool. But this is the thing. In the, uh, I believe, early 50s, photos were taken with the most advanced cameras of the day in the 50s of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those photographs are better than the high-res photos taken by Google a couple years ago because those scrolls have deteriorated since then. They're exposed to air now, and even though they're being kept in the best conditions imaginable at the Israel Museum, uh, you still can't help things from deteriorating. So we're doing a destructive science, and we pull things out, uh, they're gone. And our goal is to preserve uh, as much as possible of what we're preser- of what we're destroying, essentially.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So it used to be, uh, say, for it's instance... It's all
1: in the name of education as well, I mean, yeah. to... to- I, I get kind of both sides. I mean, you keep it in the ground, we're never truly going to understand kind of our own history as a species and, and really what civilization has been like. So it's almost a necessary sacrifice. Or oh, yeah.
2: And it's still being preserved. You're not oh, taking yeah. bits of pottery and being like, this is less important. Let's yes. throw it into the garbage.
3: I've also found that there's put also... put it back in the ground. <laughs> or let's, let's have a co-host lick it. Or yeah, exactly, that. exactly. <laughs> but there's a push and pull between how fast you want to go and dig. hmm and, uh, and preservation. Mm-hmm. And I have found that digs that have a lot of funding, it's kinda like more money, more problems. Mm. Because they have big bu- big donors backing them and they wanna find shiny things. And then some of the scientists, or especially your geoarchaeologists, your geologists who work with you, they'll be a lot more like, no, let's just slow down and, and take this a little bit easy. I really like the dig that I uh, work at currently called the Telberna Archaeological Project. It's in the Shefei Law in Israel, which is a region um, that's the, basically the hill country. It's the breadbasket of, uh, of the Holy Land of Israel. Um, in between the coastal plain and the, uh, and the hills, the mountains where Jerusalem and a, and a few other important city centers are. So I've been working at the uh, Berna Archaeological Project, and uh, one of the things that I like there is it's Israeli-run. And we have a good amount of funding to do what we need to do, but also too, we're not one of the largest projects out there and one of the biggest funded projects. And kind of our attitude is, well, it's been sitting in the ground for three thousand years; I can wait one more summer. We don't need to rush things. <laughs> yeah. it's true. We'll it's get not them really out. Going yeah, anywhere. it's not going anywhere. And, and in our area, we're not really worried about looters and things like that with what we're pulling up. So. There's always this push and pull between going really fast um, and kind of taking your time so you don't destroy things. But one thing that's, uh, that's, that's happening with, with technological advances is it's allowing us to be less destructive or to, or to preserve things. It used to be that you just did drawings, say, of the architecture and things like that that you were digging up. And you would actually have people who were trained in um, architectural design and drawing do this for you. Mm. And we still do this sometimes. There's still, no matter how advanced cameras get, you're still gonna need some people to actually draw things, to emphasize something. And, and things that a photograph isn't going to capture because you're wanting to emphasize certain parts on an artifact or in architecture, or something like this. But we've also gotten more advanced. So it went from doing architectural drawing to doing uh, uh, GIS geographic information systems which
2: is wonderful
3: it is wonderful and 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 as uh, as a professor once said to me uh, gis equals j-o-b <laughs> it's
2: true because gis is true. a
3: godless thankless task and everybody wants to do the kind of sexy job of finding the shiny things in the ground and digging in the dirt and finding the full clay vessels and statues and ancient jewelry and stuff, but GIS is so necessary. This is helping us, you know, mm-hmm. preserve what actually existed there. Um, and so you always have uh, some people who are sort of uh, GIS specialists. But we're also reaching a new level now where, I mean, this still involves GIS, but we're taking things to the next level, where now some digs are doing like a LiDAR. So they can laser scan an area that they've excavated so that they can completely digitally recreate that area. Using mm-hmm. the laser scan. Wow. Now, the only drawback with LiDAR is that LiDAR is uh, very expensive, at least As currently. One can imagine. Yeah, with it lasers. costs it costs yes. a good bit of money, and so my dig right now is one of the few. Um, actually, Megiddo that I mentioned earlier, Harmegiddo, they're doing this, and my dig is doing this, and we're kind of on we're on the cutting edge of this, but we're doing uh, photogrammetry. Which is, was actually, what's funny is that a lot of uh, scientific techniques in archaeology were actually borrowing and adapting from the oil industry and from companies that go after things like rare earth minerals for our cell phones.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't think of that, but it's mm-hmm. it's completely in the same wheelhouse. That exactly,
3: makes, yeah. it's, it's in the same genre and everything. And the thing is though, they're private bus- businesses that have the money to develop those things. Mm-hmm. We're academics and we don't so you're have adop- the money. Somebody else is
1: doing the work <laughs> yes, and using right. the resources and you're adopting and it. And we're
3: finding ways to adapt a lot of, especially in the, uh, the archeological sciences, we've adapted a lot of techniques of analysis and such uh, from basically from oil companies or companies going after rare earth minerals and, and things of this nature,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, but but photogrammetry has actually come from uh, Hollywood and the video game industry. Interesting. And what photogrammetry? So? Okay, yeah. so what? Sorry, this is this is pretty cool. What photogrammetry does is what we can do is uh, it was actually based on um, uh, a paper written in the '70s on artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. talking about the way that we see things. The way that we view things and the way that we perceive depth is with movement and having multiple angles on something. We have two eyes that helps give us a sense of of depth, but Mm -hmm. also, too, movement, just even the little movement of my head back and forth gives me depth Mm -hmm. of something. So what has been developed from this idea is photogrammetry that was actually implemented by Hollywood and video game uh, uh, creators of you take a bunch of photos of something and this software, the software that's being developed and is developed uh, basically fills in the gaps. But you take multiple photos of something all the way around it. You have to take a bunch of photos, but you can do this relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. And you have to do your settings a certain way, depends on how uh, accurate you want it to be, but like in uh, the Star Wars Battlefront games, the giant trees on uh, on Endor with the with the Ewoks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in the video game, all they did was they did photogrammetry on actual redwood trees in in California. Really? Yeah. And so they put. They just digitized a redwood tree. And they're like, like here's a level for it. Yeah, and so, and they it's put indoor, a bunch of- It's just they, kidding, it's
2: actually California.
3: It's actually, yeah, exactly redwood <laughs> trees in California. They just put it's that Mare in. It's California. Mere Woods, yeah. hello. And so what we're doing now is we're starting to do things like that where we can um, take a bunch of photos and use this software that's relatively inexpensive. And also, this is not that time consuming. And we can take a bunch of photos of an area, and you can even do this every day, so that you are preserving everything that you've excavated and what you've destroyed, what holes you've made in the ground, mm. what architecture you've exposed. So if you ever feel like, oh man, we dug too deep and you know, uh, in this one area, we went too fast, or this volunteer messed up a little bit, you know, or something like that.
1: Does that but happen often?
3: It happens, <laughs> uh, and I have stories there too. Uh, but uh, we can recreate what we've destroyed. Mm. I remember one time seeing this beautiful Byzantine mosaic and absolutely incredible, but it was Byzantine, it was late Roman, and it was near the top, and we needed to dig underneath it. We destroyed it. Oh no. On purpose, Oh but yes. we took every photo imaginable, every measurement imaginable, every stone from this thing was saved. Mm-hmm. Technically, if you wanted to recreate this entire mosaic, you could, mm. but we had to keep going deeper. Or uh, say at a site called Hatzor in the north, they found um, a, an Israelite house. This was actually an Israelite house, is what it was. And, uh, but they knew that there were still things to keep digging for underneath it. Mm. But they didn't want to destroy this. So they numbered every single stone and moved it piece by piece to another area of the site and wow. recreated it because the site is also a national park. And also being Israel and these being ancient ancient Israelites, there's kind of a yeah. nationalist political uh, thing going on there. <laughs> uh, but so they, they moved it, and then underneath it, they found an area that that was someplace where certain Canaanite religious rituals took place. Mm-hmm. So it paid off. I mean, yeah. they had to dismantle this whole thing, but they tried to be as accurate as they could in, in, in moving it, preserving it, mm-hmm. because and that's the thing we're we're destroying these things as we, as we as we go down and probably in another 50 100 years archaeologists are going to look back on the type of things that I'm doing now on a dig and they're going to be like they're just utter barbarians <laughs> you know yeah. um like the, what were they even thinking like i mean it's
0: how you
1: felt about the trenches yeah yeah
3: or, or like medi- same thing in medical science too we yeah. look back and like you used leeches you know and like and bloodletting and stuff and, and they're going to be do like yeah and they'll be like you just like destroyed this stuff to keep digging and uh but you know um but we're getting better at it um i mean let's face it anthropology's root came from uh eugenics and archaeology came from um basically, in some sense, colonialism, raiding areas of the world. A lot of the best stuff from the Middle East and the Holy Land is in uh, the Louvre and in the British Museum. And there's a lot of uh, political and legal arguments over the repatriation of artifacts, you yeah. know, whether or not they should be sent back to the home countries and and at least the descendants, shall we say, of the culture in which they were uh, mm-hmm. developed, or at least the, no, you know, that's the claimed yeah, descendants. Um, but, you know,, uh, yeah, we're destroying things as we go down, but we're trying to be as careful as possible and 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 be uh, not be invasive at least right. as much as we possibly can. Now, along those lines, this is this is kind of interesting, is that Israel actually allows volunteers to show up. People can just you can come just show up from there. and this just is, say, hey. and the, and I have volunteers every year that this is like a bucket list thing for them. I had a volunteer one time who was one of my like, best like spunkiest volunteers I've ever had who was in his I think mid 80s. (laughs) He had just uh, climbed Machu Picchu with his son and he was talking he was just going on a bucket list trip in his life. He talked about being in Machu Picchu and chewing on the the the, the coca leaves whatever that cocaine cocaine comes from and he like he like he zipped up Machu Picchu as he said but this guy he was like Carrying buckets of dirt and stones like crazy. Now you couldn't put him in a place where he was like bent over for a long time working, and like because his, his joints right. weren't that good. But he had so much energy and enthusiasm, mm-hmm. and and that's how I, you know, I did my first dig because I was just like, I just want to try this. I just I thought this would be a segue to just seeing the Holy Land, and I'm like, what better way? I'll travel around some and I'll dig in the dirt. But then I got bit by the bug of archaeology, and I and that became my focus and I and my passion right. is like I just. I did, went on one dig and I was hooked for mm-hmm. life. And yeah. uh, and I just had to keep going back. But we get people every year who just, this is a maybe a one-time thing for them or something they've just always wanted to do. And I think it's a wonderful way to see the region. But Israel actually allows um, volunteers with no experience or education to be there, but they have a regulatory agency, the uh, Israel Antiquities Authority, that's making sure that these digs are running things properly, that the supervisors are, managing their volunteers right. But if you go to a place like Jordan or Egypt, they don't allow American undergraduate kids or senior citizens who just wanna do something on a bucket list <laughs> or whatever. They don't let them just show up with no experience and start digging. Cause that is, it's, it's dangerous to them and you can destroy the cultural heritage, yeah. right. but also too, it, it's it's a labor thing, and that like Jordan or uh, Egypt will make you hire local uh, Arab workers yeah. or, or local citizens of the country, and sometimes you have some uh, some of these workers who've been working on the same archaeological dig that's been going since late colonial times, and like their father and grandfather worked on this really? dig, and that the sons at this point or the grandsons even are. Amazing excavators because they've done this constantly. Yeah. But at the same time, it's kind of a catch-22 because, you know, it, there needs to be certain countries like Israel where volunteers can, can cut their teeth. And then they can, down the line, be the professional staff who runs things right. in Jordan or, or, or Egypt or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I will just say, as an aside, um, getting into this field, um, I used to have friends that would go to Syria every summer. And dig Just like I would go to Israel every summer and dig, they went to Syria every summer. Really? And now, um, you know, I mean, basically in terms of the region that I study, because archaeology, you're always studying uh, a certain region of the world and usually specializing in in some general time period. And, uh, well, my research area, about a third of it is controlled by ISIS these days. Wow. So you can imagine what that's done for jobs and things like that. Yeah. Because there's actually, in, in some ways, or, or there has been, I, I would say, maybe a little bit of an over-concentration of archeologists in places like Israel and Jordan because mm-hmm. we, we can't work in areas yeah. of, of of Syria. Now, there are areas of Kurdistan, the one sort of quote-unquote success story of the American invasion of Iraq uh, is the Kurds, you could say, in, in northern uh, Iraq. But there are areas of Kurdistan that archeology is returning to them. And very good archeology, span because. The Kurds can hold their own in certain areas and and they have a lot of history in those areas, and it's beautiful. My friends who've worked there say it's some of the most beautiful places on Earth. Um, But now there's a whole new area in my field, because of ISIS and because of destruction of cultural heritage, of a whole area of my field that's uh, devoted to the study of the destruction of cultural heritage. We're doing things like using satellite images to find out what ISIS is actually destroying.
1: So, oh, really? where technology is kind of coming in to help bridge that gap, it mm-hmm. sounds like.
3: Um, and also, too, I'll use this public forum to point out that the Hobby Lobby family of uh, of infamy—they're mm-hmm. uh, opening a museum uh, near National Mall in DC called the uh, 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 the Museum of the Bible because they have they have the largest antiquities collection of. Uh, any rich family in the U S and a lot of their antiquities Mm. came from the black market really, and may have very well funded terrorism. And so that's become another thing in my field. And I try to be very vocal about this. Uh, there are some people in my field who, who don't, talk about it that much because, well, jobs are limited and you don't want to rock the boat too much. Uh, But I work uh, outside of uh, academia these days, so I can say whatever I want. Um, (laughs) But the Hobby Lobby family uh, is basically trying to create their evangelical propaganda museum, uh, the Museum of the Bible, and they're doing it a lot of times with uh, stolen antiquities Um, that may have funded terrorism. that's Uh, That's unsettling to think about. Yes, very is there anxiety. is
1: there like more reading material on this that maybe? Oh, totally. We can, okay, I can cool.
3: send you all kinds of links on this. We'll, that we'll include in the bog, blog. Yeah, it I'll be also, in the blog post. I will put this out for you. But um, but yeah, and they've actually been investigated for the FBI in this, and they haven't really gone after them yet. But uh, it, there's been a lot of ethical questions surrounding the upcoming Museum of the Bible. That I yeah, it's opening later this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Museum of the Bible, because oftentimes we have this area where conferences and academic journals won't accept things that are that came from the black market. Because we don't want to support them, period. Right. And also too, I'll say this, and getting back to method and how we do this, 95% of a finds value comes from its context. Mm. It can be really beautiful, it can have ancient writing on it, it can be made of pure damn gold. If it's not from the place where it came out of the ground, it loses historical meaning for us mm-hmm. almost entirely because we need to know where was this thing? Where was it sitting in a house yeah, or a temple needed- or a palace? Mm-hmm. What culture was it with? What was it around? So even if we had the Shroud of Turin and <laughs> yes.
2: it came from you know an ISIS organization, <laughs> all value of it would just be almost null. It'd be a scrap of paper or cloth,
3: essentially. It loses, um, it lo- everything loses almost all of its value for us if it's out of context. And that's wow. the problem with, that's one of the problems with looting. Um, and one of the issues with right now, we're seeing a destruction of cultural heritage in the world under ISIS that we haven't seen since the Holocaust. Um, you might have seen things like uh, uh, the rape of Europa and uh, and documentaries like this that are about all the the art that was run that was owned mm-hmm. by Jewish families in Europe and how the Nazis actually targeted right. uh, families and, and areas that, that had some of this art well we're seeing something that's just as bad or even in some respects worse and is much more focused on ancient ancient history um, with Isis right now now I will say this is that sometimes, an item will come up on the black market that still warrants uh, being investigated. You might have something that's divorced from all of its context, and that's horrible. And you might have suspicions of it being a forgery. Mm -hmm. But you also might have enough evidence that, look at this thing, we kind of know where it came from, there's writing or whatever on it, and we can still glean bits and pieces of information from it that are of value, even if it came from the black Mm -hmm. market. But we try to avoid the black market altogether. And now, uh, Do you think
1: that, and and I'm just kind of curious about this, because I think um, we see a division, very, very hard and fast division between licit and illicit markets, period. Mm -hmm. And to the point that licit markets don't even want to recognize that illicit markets even exist. We don't Mm -hmm. talk about it, we we pretend like it's not there. I've seen this a lot in politics. Mm -hmm. When you make political decisions, a lot of times the illicit market isn't factored in Mm -hmm. when making even economic decisions. which I just think is a paradigm, right? Yeah. So do you think that's a good thing in a way or, or do you feel like that's a that's a gray area or do you agree with the fact that it should be separate and that it shouldn't be engaged with? Like how do you feel about that?
3: It should be totally separate and, that, and that's at least the professional standard in our field. Mm-hmm. But you also have to have the wisdom to know when, look, there are certain things that the Hobby Lobby family owns, the Green family that are in the Museum of the Bible that are still worth studying.
0: Mm-hmm
3: that we may not know exactly where they came from, but these are still things that should be available to the scholarly community.
1: And the reason that you don't agree with it, just so I can get some clarity around this, is it because of basically who you'd be funding? Is that is that part of why you feel like you shouldn't engage and it should be completely separate and you should isolate?
3: Yes, although so this, is, okay. this is the thing. Um, let's take the drug war for example. Drugs are always gonna exist. Mm-hmm and people of every socioeconomic level of society do them in in some respects or or, or whatever. Um, That's something that you can't really cut off uh, the market of completely. And same thing with black market antiquities. You're never gonna cut off the market of it completely. But this is the thing. Um,
0: But if you
1: decrease the demand.
3: Blue-collar workers aren't buying black market antiquities. Yes. (laughs) Rich and poor people are buying drugs. Yeah, various drugs, whatever, they might have different preferences and based on their socioeconomic status and their culture. Mm -hmm. But it's really only people with a good bit of money or tourists with a good bit of money or families that are collectors with a good bit of money who are... um, Purchasing.
1: Purchasing
0: purchasing these things. Mm -hmm.
3: And so we can... This is a war that we can't win, but we can put a good dent in. Yes. And we can can do something um, about this. So kind of devalue these illicit
2: markets in in the sense that you know how ivory tusks and things like that mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. are either demonize
1: being demonize the consumption of it. Right.
2: Yeah. Like yeah. there's a big movement now to either paint them or do mm-hmm. something to them to really almost tarnish the value to black marketers, things like that yeah. to really impede I'm not saying by any means it's the exact same thing, but kind of the same idea behind it. It's
1: the same wheelhouse, and and it's the same conversation with illicit and illicit and where the line Mm -hmm. is and when it's beneficial and when can you have impact, right? So that's a very different conversation for the drug trade versus you know, for this, for antiquities.
3: And I have friends that this has become, uh, I have some friends and colleagues in the field that their careers have shifted into that now they're dealing mainly with, they used to be excavators of a certain site, traditional field archeologists, and now their entire career is focused on the illicit antiquities trade and destruction of cultural heritage. This is a result of of the rise of ISIS. But it's also always been a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's always been looting um, and things like this, and yeah, I remember, remember one time. One time I was in, college, in the, about it, yeah, One time I was going to uh, uh, the Taipei Brewery in the West Bank. Uh, Taipei is a small Christian Palestinian Christian town uh, in the West Bank, and they make a very good wheat beer. And I joke that their town's not far from Jericho. Jericho is where we have the first evidence of humans domesticating mm-hmm. wheat. Interesting. About ten thousand so uh, before present, ten thousand years or so before present. I think a little bit more. I'd have to look that up exactly. But anyway, thousands of years ago, humans first, to our knowledge, they may have done this in other areas and maybe a little bit earlier here or there. But first time that humans domesticated wheat, that agriculture as we know it begins. The the, the Neolithic Revolution. This is a key turning point in human history. Yeah. Some people would say that we were a lot worse off afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a lot of anthropological arguments there. But I, uh, I like to say at this Taipei Brewery that their wheat beer has been something like 12,000 years in the making, uh, this Palestinian brewery. But uh, I was going there with some friends uh, because uh, uh, we were just traveling around the West Bank as Western tourists, and I'm comfortable traveling around the West Bank. A lot of Western tourists are really afraid to go into the West Bank because of Palestinian territory, and they're scared, and they shouldn't be. I'm, I, you're much more likely to get shot and die a violent death around Atlanta. You are around the West Bank. Palestinians and Israelis alike love you as an American tourist. You're there enjoying their country and spending money. Yeah, <laughs> and also hospitality is a thing of their cultural of yeah. their culture. Mutually, it just is. Uh, it's something that I relate to being from the south myself. The hospitality mm-hmm. of Arab and, and and Israeli and Palestinian mm-hmm. culture um, over there. But I went to Taipei went to this brewery and we found a Palestinian uh, Muslim man who uh, was a taxi driver who drove drove us over there. And uh, they do make a non-alcoholic uh, uh, beverage there for their Muslim neighbors at Tai So he got to sip on that while we drank the Tai Bay. We actually met the brewer. Uh, but, oh, uh, cool. but so this is not far from Ramallah. And Ramallah is the air quotes, kind of quote unquote, uh, capital of Palestine. They want their capital to be uh, East Jerusalem. But Ramallah is kind of the political heart yeah. of, of They're West Bank Palestinian uh, uh, territory. Uh, but driving back from Ramallah, this uh, Palestinian man uh, starts describing to me, and, and first I didn't know what he was getting at, but basically uh, he found out that we were archeologists and he had found some type of black stone, maybe I was thinking it was made of basalt, which is kind of a, a, a volcanic rock that's very hard and a number of sculptures and things like that are, are made out of it um, in the region. And uh, he started describing to me some stone that he found on his family's land in Palestinian territory. And he started describing it to me like in drawing it out on a piece of paper. And he was trying to basically get me to appraise it for him and tell him (laughs) how much it was worth. But also he found it and he buried it again. Now, I I don't find any fault with this man. And when I talk about looting, like ISIS has systematically looted places for the Mm -hmm. purposes of funding their violence against other people. This man just found a thing on his land. Yeah, <laughs> And he brought it up and then he buried it again and he was telling us, cause I guess he was maybe trying to get me to give him an idea of what it was or maybe even how much it was worth. But also too, he was afraid to go public with it because he was afraid that maybe the uh, Israeli government might come into the West Bank and say you have cultural heritage here and try to take his take land. His lands, yeah. It probably wouldn't happen, but it's a real fear. Yeah, It's a real fear. And so, you know, and so when I talk about looting and, and these cultural heritage concerns, I mean, there's such a range here between sometimes stuff's just on people's land and they have no malicious intent at all. And sometimes you have things like, or groups like ISIS who are, as a matter of policy, going after antiquities yeah. and, and destroying things, you know? Um, so I, that's kind of what we're up against here <laughs> that's a lot <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so
1: why are you doing this as a child
3: yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um It's not a lot of money in that <laughs>
2: yeah
1: no. you're fighting the good fight but yeah. never pays yeah. well yes
2: yeah. you've brought up a lot of interesting points and i think one of the biggest ones is that you work in an area that's highly politicized right now mm-hmm. and i think shedding light on your experiences there in terms of that might be interesting to kind of talk about more and yeah. what that looks like, especially considering what we're hearing from the new administration here in the United States about what's going on over there and what's actually going on over there.
1: I feel like there's and a lot of misinformation. Yeah. There's a
3: lot going on. and Let me just say this to, to start off real quick, and then I'm going to get into my area of, of politics and in archaeology of Israel-Palestine specifically. Uh, people on the right and the left wing keep talking about this thing called a two-state solution. Mm-hmm. I'm going on a little bit of an aside here, but the two-state solution is dead. It's been dead for a long time. Mm. And we keep talking about it. And both the right wing and left wing keep dangling dangling it on like a carrot on a stick, but the carrot's already been eaten and gone. It doesn't exist anymore. There's too many settlements in the West Bank, and they're not going to be removed without a bloody civil war. And any war over there, I can tell you, is going to have the most casualties. It's going to be Palestinians. Yeah. Um, I have a very—I don't have a side in Israel-Palestine anymore. I lived over there. I was there during the last um, Hamas-IDF war slaughter, whatever you want to call it. I don't care how you characterize it. Um, but. I don't have a side over there anymore and these days I'm very suspicious of anybody who claims to have answers of that and I've actually had to run into bomb shelters from Hamas rockets blowing up over my head. I mean you know you see a rocket explode 200 feet above your head that's taken out by the Iron Dome system that's paid for by America that blows rockets from the Gaza Strip out of the sky. Uh, oh yeah that whenever they reload that system it costs about $30,000 or so or more to American taxpayers sometimes they have to reload it multiple times a day. Um, in any event, I've seen bombs blow up over my head that were fired by jihadi Islamic terrorists. And you're an
2: archaeologist. Yeah. You're not someone that's fighting in the war. You're no. an archaeologist, no. and this is affecting
3: you even I, on that level. And I've seen this, and I'll tell you this. I've, I have had to run into bomb shelters from rockets that came from Hamas. I am not Islamophobic, and I am not against Palestinian nationalism. The situation in Gaza is unbelievably complex and horrible. And I'll say this, is that we're at an impasse where Israel's been around for a little while. It's a country, and it's not going anywhere, and it has the strongest economy in the region. And Palestinians are not leaving either, whether we're talking about West Bank, whether we're talking about uh, Arab Israelis who have, some of them, Israeli citizenship but still identify as Palestinians, or Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Mm -hmm. They're not leaving, and this is the thing. None of them, Israelis and Palestinians, none of them have to apologize for being born and having a national identity. Yeah. There was no American national identity until a bunch of uh, crazy uh, patriots, or we want to call them in the American colonies, British citizens, said, hey, we're a new national identity now. Deal with it, Britain. National yeah. identities only exist because we say they do. Yeah, And Israelis and Palestinians both don't have to apologize for having them. Mm-hmm. And I have plenty of Palestinian friends, not in Gaza because there's a there's a blockade on Gaza, and so I've never been there. But I spent plenty of time in West Bank, Palestine. And I have Palestinian friends, and I lived in Israel, and I have plenty of Israeli friends who are like family to me. Mm-hmm. So my views on the region are unbelievably complex. But to bring it back to archaeology, there's kind of a few different uh, routes that one can take as an archaeologist working. Uh, let, let's just say for now in in Israel proper. Um, There's, on one end of the most politicized digs would be the Ir David excavations, the City of David excavations in East Jerusalem that are run by an archeologist uh, named uh, Elat Mazar, who's a very good archeologist. She's very good, but also she's quite political. And the groups backing her excavation are strong uh, Zionist uh, organizations. And this dig is taking place in East Jerusalem. The stuff that they're finding is very important. They're uncovering the ancient capital of the kingdom of Judah. Mm -hmm. There is a political connotation there. One of the reasons that I like working in the Shefe La, the hill country area and closer to the coast, is that there's less politics. Mm -hmm. We feel a little bit more like we can just dig and be scientists and historians and archaeologists and not worry as much. But at the end of the day, everything in that region is political.
1: So just to clarify, because yeah. a lot of people, you know, may not be clear on um, yeah. when you say that it is a political dig, yeah. um, and that they are Zionist. Uh-huh. Explain a little bit about what that means.
3: Well, I, I would say that it, it's this, and, and I'm saying this very carefully because I have a lot of colleagues on on multiple sides of this issue, and friends, and people that I respect. But I'll mm-hmm. say this: is that they are digging up what is the ancient city of Jerusalem mm-hmm. in so East Jerusalem. Support their- in some sense, they are emphasizing, uh, there's a lot of debate, let me just back up a few steps. There's a lot of debate on so the it's Bible. it's a clear
1: cut about whether or not they're supporting an agenda, but if they are, yeah. Israeli, I think there's always gonna be a natural bias, right?
3: I'll get to the nexus of this, and it, it, okay. it, it, is, it is this. It is that, um, this is the thing. The kingdom of Israel, Israel and Judah, they existed. This is a historical fact. Okay. Now, if you know enough of your Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, whatever you want to call it, you know that there is a united kingdom. Everybody was under one king in David and Solomon, according to the story. And then after Solomon, the kingdom divides. You have the 10 tribes of the north that are the northern Israelite kingdom, and you have the kingdom of Judah in the south. Judah was the biggest tribe. It was the, the Texas or the California or whatever <laughs> of the tribes of Israel. So it's its own kingdom, essentially and they divide into two. Now, this is the thing. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah that I'm talking about existed. Mm-hmm. These are the descendants of Israel, in some sense, and they, they, are, they are the genealogy of ancient Judaism, whatever you want to call it. Um, one of the big debates, though, in my field is whether or not David and Solomon were historical figures. Mm. Now, mm. David and Solomon would have reigned around the time of the 10th century. So 1000 BC going towards 922 or so, if we if we want to play with different chronologies. 1000 BC to 900 BC. Now, we can find with say radiocarbon and things like that, we can get general dates, but when you're trying to hammer down something via just when a few decades mean everything, yeah. that's really difficult. And you're trying to determine Uh, You know, you have some people on one side that will say that the Bible's totally true, that David and Solomon had a uh, a kingdom that went from the Tigris and Euphrates down to Egypt and the Nile River. And then you have others who will say, totally not true, and at best they were just these tiny little warlords, and they weren't that important, and they got mythologized later. I tend to uh, take the radical notion of being a moderate and say that it's probably somewhere in the middle. For me, I do think that David and Solomon were historical figures. Uh, I do think that they're played up a lot in the Bible. There's political elements to who's writing the story. And this also gets into my background in the study of the Bible, in that uh, much of the uh, scripture that was written about the kings of Israel and Judah, including David and Solomon, was written hundreds of years after their time. So they have parts that are accurate, parts that are not accurate. So Elat Mazar uh, in East Jerusalem is digging. that what they call the Eter David, uh, City of David in Hebrew, uh, 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 excavations. So already there's a political connotation mm. here. This is the City of David. Uh, but she claims that she's found a 10th century building, palace. And if there's a King David and a palace in Jerusalem, then maybe. Why, maybe this is just David's palace. Why not? And you know what? I'm open to that idea. And, I, and I'm actually, I'm fine with that. But there is a certain political element there in the people backing her. Mm-hmm. Now, this is what I say, is that and another, another archaeologist would agree with me on this. Um, at this point, Israel as a country exists, like I was saying. Palestine exists. Or they have a national identity, rather. Neither has to justify themselves historically anymore. But they both still do it. They both are still trying to claim like, no, we were the first, no, we were the first. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the funny things that I like to do is that when Israelis and Palestinians go back and forth about who was the first, um, I've worked with uh, refugees in the US and also a little bit in Israel. You have a number of African refugees who made their way to Israel from Eastern Africa from conflicts like uh, in Somalia, Sudan, uh, Eritrea. Uh, these refugees are not treated particularly well uh, in Israel, but there are some organizations there are good Israeli organizations who are on the left wing and trying to help them, uh, these right. refugees. But when Israelis and Palestinians get into an argument, and I'm talking about the 1,000 to 900 BC, let's say David and Solomon, well, in the late Bronze Age, this is even before the conquest of Joshua, which has its own historical questions as to what actually happened or didn't happen. When you get into the time of the Canaanites, before there's any Israelites even on the picture, in terms of the Bible and archaeology, period. Uh, Egypt ruled this area of ancient Canaan, and they had a bunch of East African mercenaries in the region of Canaan at the time. Hmm. And so when Israelis and Palestinians get back and forth and go, no, we're first, we're first, and they get in this pissing contest of who actually has cultural patrimony <laughs> uh, over this area, I go, you know, actually these African refugees beat all of you, they're actually first, they're before any of you. Uh, but that's just my little fun <laughs> yeah. jab to go, well, actually the Egyptians had uh, uh, black African mercenaries in your region before yeah. uh, any of your ancestors were any here ever here by any account whatsoever. But that's just me being silly. Because honestly, I don't believe that any group there needs to justify their existence anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, mm-hmm. They're there, and that's just it. Period.
1: So I know that you feel that you don't have a solution. No, not even close. So
3: no, yeah. I know some things that are very wrong that people shouldn't do. Um, is
1: that like kill each other. Yeah, yeah.
3: Like you know, I'm Murder on the side of I'm on the side yeah. of people not blowing each other up. I'm not sure whose side that is anymore. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's fair. I want Israel to continue to exist and thrive and prosper, and I have friends who are born and raised Israelis so don't have to apologize for being there. And same thing for my West Bank Palestinian friends and, and Arab-Israeli friends, you know?
1: You just want them, um, yeah, to live and, yeah. Live and prosper. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: and so kind of getting back to, to, to archaeology in this, I guess um, you can take a few different stances as an archaeologist. You can either, on the one hand, um, act like you're not political at all, You know, just be like, I'm just here to study history and do archaeology, and uh, I don't want to have anything to do with the politics. But you're lying to yourself if you do that. Mm -hmm. Everything over there is political. You're involved. And even if you don't want to be involved, especially if you're working on stuff in the Iron Age and things like that, uh, people are going to take the information that you're putting out there and they're going to use it politically. Mm -hmm. So, sorry, you're a part of this whether you like it or not. On the other hand, though, uh, you could take... I would say an even worse route, and that would be to be overtly political for one side or the other. To actually say I'm vehemently for this or that. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be even more problematic, because then you're just adding the flame, the fire to all this. But I'm part of a small group that's trying to take a a, a third route here. Uh, We're called uh, the Society for Humanitarian Archaeological Research and Exploration, also known as SHARE, is our cute Mm -hmm. little acronym. <laughs> but we're providing. It worked out well. Yeah, yeah, it's great. But we're we're working on. It's fun, It's founded by my friend uh, Dana DePatrio, who got his PhD in Egyptology from Berkeley, and I know him from Ashkelon that dig that I mentioned. We, we met years ago. But uh, our goal is we're trying to bring young Israelis and Palestinians to work together on archaeological digs, because on a, on an archaeological dig, um, you learn. You it's like summer camp for adults but you get to know people really quickly. You're working in the hot sun every day. We start work every morning, start work at about 5 Mm -hmm. a.m. We eat breakfast at like 9 a.m. and you feel like you've already worked a whole day. (laughs) And then you're done working by 1 p.m. We go back and have lunch, but then we have in the afternoons pottery washing and then staff like me. So our volunteers are washing pottery, hopefully finding some inscriptions or cool things like that. Staff like me, we're recording stuff, uh, putting stuff in inventory, analyzing, da-da-da-da, whatever you say. It's a some very- the more indoor. Yes, and the thing is we only work in the summers, really, because uh, we're, we're academics. Um, like the Israel Antiquities Authority, if someone's building a hotel on the beach in Israel and they find a Canaanite town, well, whoops, and they just, the bulldozer finds that, then they have to come in at that time, no matter what time of year it is, and, and excavate it. Mm-hmm. But most digs only run during um, the summer. And um, it's not a sustainable lifestyle. You're getting up extremely early, five to six days a week and working your butt off in the hot sun and it's exhausting and it's difficult. It's physically and intellectually uh, 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 taxing. It's something that I love about it. I feel like every part of you uh, gets challenged. It's something that, that, that I love about the culture of it and that I'm kind of addicted to. But you get to know people really quickly. So my friends and I had this idea of, let's bring a bunch of young Israelis and Palestinians to work together on a dig. Let's put them in a hole together with a bunch of pickaxes and see what happens. See what happens. And uh, it's worked out pretty well. Because we don't believe that we have a solution to the conflicts over there.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: But we believe that we can provide a venue, especially as outsiders, as Americans, and some as of our neutral, colleagues, Europeans, yeah. and just to go, we don't know the answer to this stuff, but y'all are young people, and you can talk with each other and meet each other face to face, and it's going to be your thing to figure out. And so we're recognizing our political role without saying we know how to fix this. Yeah. And so that's the position that, that I uh, advocate for, is to recognize that we're, we're a part of this whether we like it or not, mm-hmm. without um, fueling uh, the fire of it. And also to let, I mean, I, and I lived there. I could be really opinionated and justify my opinions by the fact that I actually lived there, but I don't have answers for that place right i just i just truly truly
1: well and and to be fair we're outsiders that we really have no place coming up with those answers and i think this is a a fallacy that exists in like policy making is that we're going to tell these people how to live when in reality we never Ask, yeah. or we never, you know, really put the tools in their hands to really make those decisions. And so I think paving the yeah. way for people to work together yeah. is is a step in the right direction. I mean, it's yeah. a very, very early, early, early step, but yeah. I mean, it's something that needs to happen, you know.
3: And these kids working together, like say in our program, uh, they're meeting with each other, they're having dialogue, and it's very organic. Because I've been involved with a number of dialogue organizations over there, and sometimes it's a little awkward. Like, hey, we're gonna have you, uh, you know. Kids talk about the '67 war now, you know, and it's like it's kind of forced. Right. But when you just have them working outside in a hole, finding old things together, they're also learning. Um, and and to get back to method a little bit, we don't actually use shovels ever. Because think about a shovel; it's just a big blade that you're sticking into the ground. and yeah. It's just going to cut anything <laughs> yeah. in half and destroy it. Yeah. So we, but we will do things like use pickaxes to break up the ground, mm-hmm. which is actually a pickaxe is less destructive than a shovel. Because a shovel is just a big blade that you're putting into the ground and slicing things in half. Whereas a pickaxe is gonna put a point of pressure but it's gonna break up the ground. And so we teach our kids everything like from that and like the basic stuff of like how to throw a pickaxe, because there is a technique to throwing a pickaxe to A, excavate correctly, and B, not hit yourself. I saw someone have to get stitches in their lip, an American, because he hit himself in the face with a pickaxe. Um, so, of course, <laughs> it was an American that did this. Uh, my God. <laughs> my, my fellow countrymen, like, uh, you're not allowed to hike up Masada, this famous site in Israel anymore, uh, in uh, August, because every year a couple tourists would die. Oh it's next God. to the Dead Sea, because. American tourists, we, it was always Americans to get up there and think like, I'm just gonna climb up this little mountain in one of the hottest, driest places on earth and I just got off the plane in Tel Aviv mm-hmm. and then they die of dehydration. And so mm-hmm. now you can't hike up the snake path during certain times of the year anymore. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Americans abroad. I yeah. I, I love <laughs> us and I hate us <laughs> at the same time. But these, okay, so getting back to these kids though with the, with the SHARE program is, um, We're teaching them everything from like uh, how to throw a Mm pickaxe to like how to use these days, which has become the standard in the field in the last few years, how to use an aerial drone to take high res photographs. Mm -hmm. Uh, We used to send up like a balloon, and this was only years ago, uh, with a high quality, high res camera on the bottom of it that would take at at, at the end of the season, after you've dug a bunch, you get a a photo, high Mm -hmm. res photo of that Mm -hmm. using this balloon. Now it's all drones. And we're teaching our kids things like that, and we're teaching them how to restore pottery, you know, how to put Humpty Dumpty back together again and things like that, so we're teaching them, Marketable skills that if they want to go into archaeology, there's not a lot of money for me as an archaeologist here in America, but for them living in the region, yeah, uh, they can go into that. But also too, they could be things like it can be pretty lucrative to be a licensed tour guide over there. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. Yeah, so like you know, it's a skill set for them, mm-hmm. um, and so we're teaching. But them it's
1: some... also, I mean, I think that's really incredible too to just bring youth into something that is it's studying the historical context of where you live and like. You know, you're getting. I mean, it's one thing to go to a museum and see something removed, but it's mm-hmm. another thing entirely to pull it out of the ground and see, you know, be where this existed, right? You're not, so. Yeah.
2: And you're not giving them talking points. You're not yeah. saying, figure out a solution to this or this or this. Yeah. It's just go dig
3: and just yeah. Yeah, interact together in a normal, and, yeah, organic I mean, it's way. It's means complex,
1: but simple in the same way.
2: Yeah.
3: Well, and also, to, this is my thing is that it's their cultural heritage. Yeah. It's exactly. not mine. And so.
1: And that's I the am. two that two can agree. I yeah. mean, and that's the the thing that they have in common, right? Mm-hmm. Is cultural heritage. I mean, they have, they're both in the same area, right? Yeah. And that's the thing that they're fighting over. That's the thing that they have in common. That's absolutely seems like a really cool place to find. You know,
3: at least and they're all related to this. Mm-hmm. You know, and and they're all they're all a part of this in the different time periods. And so it's like part of this for me is that as uh, as an American and, and a lot of scholars over there, you know, are European or American working in archaeology. Um, it, more and more, so it's run by Israelis themselves, mm-hmm. and not just Israelis, but Arab Israelis, and also slowly, slowly but surely, Palestinians too in the West Bank at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're writing their story as Americans and Europeans. Yeah. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. I'm an American, and I don't like that. Yeah, I want to dig and study. From it. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I want to dig and I want to study that region, and I want to write about it. But I want to allow the ultimate story to be written by the people who are, I would say, the rightful heirs of the story.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, we're all very removed from that story in the Iron Age. I mean, <laughs> yeah. basically, you know, as my uh, old Hebrew Bible professor used to say at UGA, that there isn't really a relation between Iron Age Israelite religion and Judaism. They both didn't have pork, they were both kind of nominally. Monotheistic. Mm -hmm. But he's like, actually, we've really had like four different religions uh, in Judaism uh, since the Iron Age and ancient Israelite religion. Mm -hmm. Um, But still, there's a genealogy there, and they're connected to that. And the same goes for Palestinians, too. I mean, a lot of people don't like to mention the fact that a lot of Palestinian uh, Muslims are descended from families that were Jews and Christians who converted. And they didn't all convert by the sword either. That's kind of a a misconception. Mm-hmm. A lot of them chose this and decided to convert. So, everyone there in that region has a claim to it and is related to it in some way. Yeah. Right. So, you mentioned a couple of times
2: about science and politics, and it reminded me of one thing that I've been clinging on to for dear life lately as mm-hmm. a scientist myself. <laughs> one of the CDC directors, Bill Faggy, who is known as the Father of global health, and he's mm. known as the guy that pretty much eradicated smallpox on a global level.
3: Wow, he, pretty big accolade! There, it's a huge, <laughs> yeah,
2: he's incredible. And um, Dr. Fagy was at some conference talking, and he was asked about advocacy and mm-hmm. politics and what is the line that scientists should draw with advocacy, and when do you stop advocating as a scientist? Because mm-hmm. even more so now. Scientists are kind of being pushed back and saying, Don't really look into politics at all, stick in to what you know, stay in your lane and stay he, in your lane, yeah. Stay in your lane. And he was asked, What is the line? and he said the line is the truth. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was very profound, and I'm mm-hmm. I keep thinking of that today. And so maybe more generally talking to you as a scientist, how do you feel about that as well? I mean, at this point in time where things are very political and heating up, and you're a scientist. How do you feel about that, and does that relate to you at
3: all? Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say that, in particular where I'm working, um, well, for one, my excavation just got a grant from the uh, Israel Science Foundation. And so, kind of like uh, NSF grants or NEH grants, and. And uh, things like that that I think the Trump administration is looking to defund. Uh, We just got one of these from uh, the Israeli government, their equivalent of it. And Israel invests more of their GDP in the sciences than any other country in the world. One of the reasons why I did a master's degree in Israel and not in America is because it cost a third as much. Wow. Whatever people wanna talk about with Israel, and again, I have my nuanced views and my strong criticisms, but they put a lot of money into the sciences, and that's wonderful. And Mm -hmm. science and technology is a mainstay of their economy and their culture because of that. And so um, I do think that in sort of a line there, we should be really loud about funding. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, especially compared to the military budget and other things, this is couch change and the return on the investment you get is profound. Right. So I'd say overall, we have to be vocal just about funding period, because we're mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of our government's budget, we're not talking about a lot of money. And of course, you know, Fox News is always gonna find a few things where something was wasted on a stupid project. Okay, cool. Also, a lot of really amazing things and careers got funded with this. And America is losing its edge in the sciences. Yeah. We are the losing absolutely- our edge. And again, I, I'm kind of a, an early story of this because I did a graduate degree in another country, not here in the U.S. Now, mm-hmm. part of it was I wanted to study that region, and, and there's a hands-on experience you can have studying archaeology in Israel as opposed to doing a program in the U.S. that focuses on the archaeology of Israel, but you're only going there every summer. You know, I got to be in the dirt all the time, but. We're losing our edge in the sciences. Um, I would say then though, when you get into the, uh, the line of that specific to what I'm talking about and kind of relating to what I was saying earlier about my little program with Israeli and Palestinian kids, um, I think it's the place of foreigners, and I've just decided this is somebody who lived there to not say how things sh- should be done. And, what, and not say that we have solutions. I understand the p- power thing though, like I lived in Israel and definitely Israel has the strength in the military and all of this stuff and I recognize the, the disproportionate uh, power in these things. I got that, I understand that nuance too for anybody listening here. Uh, but I also just don't think that I have answers for them and it's their thing. But I also think that we have to, uh, as scientists, as researchers, uh, recognize that we are uh, a part of any place that we're researching um, we're helping to present it to the world in some sense, or other mm-hmm. people. And that's a really powerful thing, and you have to be careful with that. Um, so I don't know, if, if I understand your, your, your question here, uh, with regards to Israel-Palestine, you just have to be extremely careful. Um, I heard some something that I guess Trump wanted to move the uh, American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem yeah. at noon on inauguration day, <laughs> yeah. and um, I'm sorry, but you don't move an inch in Israel Palestine without years of negotiation. Uh, things are very entrenched there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well.
2: So.
1: And, and and on a lighter note, mm-hmm. um, yes. <laughs> so this is talk part... Israel
3: Palestine can get bleak really quick. Yeah, right. I, so, I'll just say I don't expect things to get better over there.
1: Can we just sum that up with it's it's complicated? It's, That's the relationship status. It's
3: yeah. extremely complicated, and, and and I'll say too,
1: and we don't have an answer, and we don't have an answer.
3: No, we just we just don't, we mm-hmm. just don't, and also too like. Younger people over there have had less interaction with each other, Israelis and Palestinians, Mm -hmm. than I have, uh, than than their parents did, sorry, uh, than their parents did rather, Mm -hmm. um, because the wall was built in the second intifada in the early 2000s.
1: Got it. So actually the younger
3: generation has less interaction. So I will say this as, as scientists and as foreigners, I've spent more time around normal, peaceful, everyday Palestinians than many Israelis will in their entire lives.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And I've certainly spent more time around normal, peaceful Israelis than many Palestinians will in their entire lives. So, something I would say to researchers and scientists who are in a context like me, where they work abroad, take advantage of the power of that American passport you have, because it's a go-anywhere passport. Yeah, you can go places and see things and meet people that even people who live there can't do. Yeah, uh, you have a lot of privilege. So. Yeah. Use it wisely and carefully, but also just use it. Yeah, meet people.
1: It's you know a being an American, but b being in science where it's not necessarily inherently political politicized. Mm-hmm. You're you're kind of at an advantage there, it's right. like a more of a neutral advantage. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah okay so to end again on i think this is the kind of the fun part for everybody yeah. listening who doesn't know much about archaeology yeah the shiny bits yeah. right so yeah. please please
2: tell me you haven't found a crystal skull so i
3: can just nah. forget the entire no Indiana crystal Jones skull movie? no Ark of the covenant yet okay. you know okay. yet yes okay.
1: So, what are some of the favorite things that you found, or some of the cool yeah. things that you found?
3: I have a few categories for this. I have uh, favorite things that I have found personally with with these hands right here, and then uh, things he's showing that I, us his hands. Uh, by my the hands way. right here. I have in hands. Case you guys didn't. And that. Uh, and then the, the other thing would be things that I've just seen seen found on a dig, maybe in another area or something like that. Um, favorite thing that I ever found personally. Um, was at Ashkelon, that site that I mentioned earlier, uh, that's just north of Gaza. And um, it was in the sift. So one of the things that we'll do in terms of method is, if you're digging like um, a floor, like where a dirt floor where people lived in a house, Mm -hmm. you will sift every bit of that dirt. Every bucket of it, you will sift. Now, if you're digging in an area that just naturally soil accumulated, Or where people had maybe filled in soil to like, uh, for like the foundation of a wall or something like that, you only sift every one to four, one to eight buckets, something like this, Mm -hmm. because you're not gonna look through every single bit of dirt you're bringing out of the ground when you don't Mm -hmm. have to.
1: You have to have a strategy Exactly, that.
3: and so depending on how sensitive the context is depends on how much you sift or not. This is one of these things that in 100 years archaeologists will probably look back at me and go, you idiots, you're barbaric idiots, why'd you do it like that? But anyway. <laughs>
1: but there, there was, are only so many hours in a day. Exactly,
3: only so many hours in a day and so much funding to do your work.
1: <laughs> exactly.
3: So, uh, But this was in the sift in Ashkelon and this was in the Persian period. So after Persia had conquered uh, the Holy Land before Alexander the Great conquered Persia. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Persians, obviously, they conquered all the way down to Egypt and the people in this area, in Israel, you know, Canaan, whatever you wanna call it, uh, they uh, had a lot of Egyptian influence. And in the sift, I could've easily missed it. It would've been so easy to not see it. But it was a small, little, very well-carved cat figurine that was the size of, I'm not joking, it maybe was about one centimeter big. Oh my gosh. Very small, uh, made of a a nice white stone and it was the Egyptian cat goddess Bastet. And you found that. Very small little thing that could have been, like you're talking it's it's smaller than uh, like your pinky fingernail, you know? and it had like a little tiny hole cut into it where you could put a, a string for like a necklace. So someone wore this. Wow! And it was just beautiful. I've brought up other little pieces of jewelry that were in different times were made of uh, copper and silver. I have seen a tiny bit of gold, uh, but I, uh, something about this piece resonated with me and I, and I just, I, I really loved that. Um, where is it now? What's that? Uh-oh. Right now, it's sitting probably in a drawer in inventory in uh, Ashkelon storage. Oh. And that's the thing. The stuff you see in a museum is a fraction of 1% of 0 point whatever percent of of what's been found. So this is the
2: part of Indiana Jones that is true, where you have
3: large... Oh, that's the most accurate part of the movies. <laughs> where you have the large... Big storage. Oh, yeah. Right. I've been in uh, I've been in areas of archaeological storage for different projects where I just pulled open a drawer full of bronze age figurines. Oh my god. Just a drawer of them. <laughs> made by Canaanites uh, m- over 3,000 3,500 or so years oh. old and just a drawer of them sitting there. All categorized and numbered but there's only so much you can put in a museum, and you're mm-hmm. gonna put a few nice examples of this thing, but you're not gonna put everything. I mean, most stuff is just in storage, you know? Wow. So, and I've handled things like that where I've been like, oh, this is, here's just a whole drawer of Egyptian figurines right here. <laughs> okay, that's just sitting there. And so another one of my favorite things that I've found uh, personally or, or have seen found personally um, was uh, I helped write an article for the Telburner project on a few uh, figurines, mm-hmm. and one of them was the, the these nude female figurines, and you had this one oh. with this woman, uh, this woman with these two uh, twins next to her breast, and she's uh, has this anguished look on her face, and she's holding open her vulva with her hands. Her, this okay? This woman, uh, this woman is she's holding open her vulva with her hands and uh she has like you do i like you do and she has this pained expression on her face and i had to uh, i wrote a paper on this and it goes (laughs) deep down the art historical rabbit hole of what is being represented here Uh is she a woman a mortal woman in the pains of childbirth with twins is she a goddess is she kind of both because sometimes when we call things divine or not divine we're applying uh Christian Western religious concepts that yeah. don't really apply necessarily, um, but there's all kinds of stuff about these figurines. But I but I, I love this figurine, and and I have my theories and ideas about it. Mm-hmm. But it's it's absolutely uh, beautiful, and it's it's enigmatic. That um, sounds
1: incredible, honestly. Yeah, and, it, and
3: like okay, so, so like, and,
1: and be like hmm, I, and to to get to theorize like what the intent was, and that's really really cool, you know.
3: This figurine. Um, you don't quite know what's going on with it, but it's, uh, it's absolutely beautiful. And so, th- this is just one of my favorite pieces. Uh, and some people theorize that maybe it had something to do with uh, potency and having children and virility mm. and stuff. Yeah. Also, too, in the Iron Age, at certain times and areas, one in five women would die in childbirth. Mm. Not necessarily on their first child, but yeah. one in five women would die in childbirth. This is kind of the case for a lot of places in the world still today. Yeah. And uh, so childbearing was an extremely dangerous, uh, uh, an extremely dangerous scenario and so a lot of religious ritual and things were wrapped up around it and, and always has been with, with birth of a child. But especially when you have one in five women dying from it, there was a lot surrounding that, uh, uh, that human condition, you know, shall we, yeah. shall we say. So those are some of the favorite things that I've uh, found personally. A few things that I've seen found on digs. Do you have any
1: like photos of those? or Oh, yeah.
3: I'll send you some photos Perfect. of all the stuff. So
1: go to right. the website. Yes, yes. There are going to be photos. Oh, yeah.
3: So I'll, I'll, you'll see all the ancient nude Canaanite women I'm holding so babies excited. with those clay boobs or whatever they have that the Canaanite artists made on them. <sighs> uh, but one of my favorite things to find personally, and this has no uh, scientific or historical value right now but I love it, it's one of my favorite things to find and i found it many times. Is that oftentimes when you're making a pot, when you're making a clay pot, uh, what you do is you, you form the clay pot, you use a potter's wheel or whatever, but then when you're wanting to put the handle on it, you put your thumb on the inside of the pot while the clay's still wet and you press your thumb there and you make a little bulge and that bulge you then connect the handle to. Mm-hmm. And you put the handle on the pot and then you let it dry, or you fire it, and you let it dry and all of that, and that's how you get the handle. Sometimes if the clay is at just the right consistency, you get an exact human thumbprint. Wow. Now, this has no scientific value, really.
1: That's just really
3: cool. It's just cool, exactly. Like, you are looking at the actual thumbprint, the unique marker of a human, of a potter who's been dead for... 4,000 years, depending on the period that you're talking about here.
2: What you're telling me, it doesn't have scientific value. So you're saying that, you know, three thousand years ago, they still didn't have, you know, a DNA registry, <laughs> yes, exactly. <or> fingerprint <laughs> exactly. registry. Exactly. I mean, you I'm know, like confused. I
3: have some fantasy about the idea that you could, you know, technically maybe like find a few of these these fingerprints with a few different pots and find a potter, find an ancient artist and give some category to their work. But but really, there's there's not yeah. right, there's not a lot of value there. But it's just cool to see that. Yeah. Um, and then one of the neatest things that I ever saw brought up at a dig was um, one of the things that you find in the Bible that I've written a little bit about, I've done a few presentations and, and academic papers about this, but um, about altars in the Hebrew Bible.
0: Mm. Mm.
3: Sacrificial altars. Oh, And this is the thing is that a lot of people don't understand that um, animal sacrifice, blood sacrifice, in Canaanite religion, in Israelite religion, um, burning up the entire animal on the altar, or burning up all of it in a fire, that's the exception rather than the rule. You only had a few very, very sacred sacrifices that were totally roasted to a crisp and sent up to God. For the most part, animal sacrifice was a barbecue, a religious barbecue. You went there, you and your family, with your sacrifice, with your goat or whatever, and you slit its throat yourself. You were very aware that eating meat involves Death, Death yeah. and blood, and actually the terms in Hebrew for killing an animal outside um, of a religious context in the book of Deuteronomy, they use the same syntax and, and words as killing a person. Because you, you're spilling mm. blood, and yeah. to do this outside of a religious context is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you're allowed to kill, and blood is a part of life. There's it has gonna be to violence. Be
2: within this religious context. It has to be
3: within this religious context. Mm-hmm. And me, I'm a, uh, I'm whatever. I'm a liberal progressive Catholic or, or whatever you want to call us, but it's something that I like in the, the Eucharist ceremony of the mass of that yes, we're not uh, killing a goat up there on the altar anymore, but it is a symbolic blood sacrifice. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It's a recognition of violence.
0: yeah
3: And um, there's something in uh, ancient sacrifice that a lot of people, think about ancient sacrifice like that is so barbaric, you know, uh, killing an animal and all this blood and stuff and it's like, well nowadays you buy meat in Kroger that's shrink wrapped and colorized mm-hmm. with food coloring and crap and it, it doesn't even look like the animal anymore. You're so detached from this thing.
1: Yeah, and I that's respect actually a big reason the why fact, I became vegan.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I respect the fact that ancient people uh, were very, in some context, or at least in a biblical context too, they're at least Ideally, conscious of the fact that this is a thing that's taking life.
1: So that's that's an incredibly interesting topic and yeah. something that's very near and dear to my heart yeah. because I had never seen an animal killed for my dinner that uh-huh. evening until I lived to China. Yeah. Um, I was living in the Chinese family and they had a woman there, like an that they called her IE auntie basically is what it translates to. Um, and she cooked and cleaned and did all of that and she's kind of like, helps in the house, right? Yeah. Um, and we went and we got a chicken and I watched her <laughs> slit, like, I mean, yep. literally break the chicken's neck, mm-hmm. pluck it. I mean, I watched her do all of this with like, incredible speed and Mm -hmm. like a woman who's been doing this her entire life we did the same thing with a duck and i had never been personally confronted with that Mm -hmm. in my life and i was like i can't believe i've never been confronted with this in this way you know it it was just so like carnal like (laughs) like in a way Mm -hmm. it's very it's like okay and then that night at dinner you know what you're eating right saw it yeah and then the same thing goes for i never i picked my own block they had their own um, like organic farm, and I had never gone out and picked mm-hmm. the vegetables that I had on my my you know, dinner plate before, and I actually went out and picked the broccoli that I ate for evening for that evening. Mm-hmm. And I was like, th- okay, so this is like being rooted in where it comes from and the work that it takes to mm-hmm. be able to create those things, and it, it totally changes yeah. your perspective.
2: Rather than just going to Whole Foods mm-hmm. and saying, I yeah. want all of this nice organic stuff that I'm so detached from, I just pay an extra $2 for it.
1: Yeah, and I just had no concept of that, you know, growing mm-hmm. up, so.
3: They, they still actually, in, in the West Bank, there is the Samaritan community. Mm-hmm and people hear Good Samaritan story and the Gospels and all of that, Uh, but Samaritans still exist, y'all. They're still a people. (laughs) They're in the West Bank. Yeah. Now, a long time ago, the thing about Samaritans was they basically said that everything in terms of the prophetic books of the Bible, all the prophets, and then, of course, all the rabbinic stuff that's added onto it that became the Talmud, that became branches of Judaism as we know it today. Okay. The Samaritans basically rejected all of that. And they said, we only go with the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, the book of the law. And so because of that, later on in the rabbinic period in Judaism, basically it was declared that if you marry a Samaritan, you're guilty of intermarriage Mm. with another religion. These people that are holding to the original five books of the Torah are no longer Jews, according to the establishment. But the Samaritans still have a community in the West Bank And because they are, in a sense, in their own way, they are strong fundamentalists. They are complete fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. And they still, according to biblical prescription, every year uh, for the New Year's festival, they they sacrifice a bunch of bulls. And tourists will go there and and they can see this. They do it according to the biblical law and everything. And they slit the bull's throat from ear to ear. It's very quick, there's a bunch of blood But they do that, and then they roast them and all this, but they do this according to biblical prescription every year. So I I wrote a paper on some altars, but what this came from for me was at Ashkelon, I I, I saw uh, we found a Philistine altar. Mm. And it had four protrusions, we call it a four-horned altar, on the four corners of it on the top. Mm. The interesting thing was this was the earliest example of this kind of uh, style of altar that had ever been found and it wasn't in Israel and Judah it was in Mm -hmm. Philistia now there's a lot of nuance there because at the end of the day you're talking about four protrusions on four corners of the top of a thing you know is 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 there a connection between that and the four horned altars described uh you know in scripture Mm -hmm. Mm, maybe I don't know also this one was made of dirt and clay with plaster put over it it wasn't carved out of stone got it but still to be there and realize like this is an altar Mm-hmm. And also too, you know, what you did was you most of the time you cooked the animal and you ate most of it. you have a portion of the priests, and then you burned up some of the entrails and other things that you weren't actually going to eat on the altar. It's really nice of God to only take the stuff that we don't want to eat, and then we get to take <laughs> you know all yeah. the, the, the other stuff. Yeah. Um, and I've since doing my research, seen a number of altars. But just to sit there and to be like, here's a thing that's the focal point Mm -hmm. of this religion, and in my own weird way, being a a modern Catholic, whatever, you know, seeing, you know, the altar is the centerpiece of any cathedral or basilica, you know, just know that this is a certain focal point, you know, for this ceremony, Mm -hmm. and so one of my favorite things to just ever see found uh, was this altar in Ashkelon. Um, and we found some religious objects at the site that I work at these days, Tilberta. We found uh, things like, uh, of course, in the Catholic mass, you have chalices for the, the wine or the blood of Christ, you know, and, and, and transubstantiation and all of this. We found a number of chalices. Mm-hmm. They're basically the same thing as chalices used in the Catholic church today, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and one of the things that I'm just convinced of in, in archeology span and one of the things that I, I, uh, that I love about it and, the, and sort of the lens that it gives me to look at, at the world is that um, I don't really think that we've changed much over the course of thousands of years, yeah. for better and worse.
1: <laughs> and that's yeah. That is, I think, an incredible note to kind of wrap up <laughs> yeah, on. I is think it's very
2: poignant. I and...
1: think we've come full circle. Yeah. You went to go study the past to understand the present, and realized. We're it's very my lens much the for same. looking at us. And Nothing fun has story. changed. Nothing,
3: <laughs> nothing's really changed. One monkey wrench that gets thrown into my thing is, is women's rights because yeah. I'm like, yeah, you know, yeah, it's a way better. The, we're not perfect. We have a long way to go still, but things are way better for women in America these days in the developing world than it oh, was yeah, uh, 100 absolutely. years ago. But I also go like this I'm like, you're still talking about a privileged, isolated area of the world. Yeah. And a very recent moment in history that is a blink on the historical radar. And so I'm like, uh, I'm really happy about that, cool, but I don't, I hope it's gonna last. But it needs to last a lot longer and also we're not talking about the whole world and we also have a whole long way to go. So I'm like, I don't think that we have, that's what part of my thing is that I believe in standing for things that are right and and, and every time that we in, in terms of scientific advancement develop something you know at the cdc or whatever that keeps some kids from dying of an awful disease that's awesome good job humanity yeah. but i don't think that we've really changed the court. that much you
1: know? i mean and, and a funny example to kind of underscore that yeah. that another friend of mine who has actually been on the show before um mm-hmm. who's a historian was reading, I know, a bunch of articles about um, when they were excavating, I think, Pompeii, and yes. they were seeing all of the graffiti that had yes. been perceived, <laughs> preserved mm-hmm. on the walls, like the so-and-so was here, and like, for a good time call. <laughs> You no. Know, essentially the exact literally was here. So and so was here was like a thing that essentially was on the wall. Like I
3: love reading stuff about like ancient Roman graffiti or even earlier, where someone just drew a dick.
0: Yes. <laughs> and it's
3: like it's like here's here's a dick. I I, I was just bored of that. Here's this monument and I'm gonna I'm gonna draw this on it. And I'm like we really just haven't changed, haven't changed at all. No. as people you saw this no, thing no, and you're like, I'm gonna draw a dick on this monument here and uh, you know that's, it. that's one that. of the most controversial things in my whole field is this piece of probably graffiti called uh it is Yahweh and his Asherah <laughs> and Yahweh has a huge dick and like <laughs> it, and we debate what it means in terms of 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 uh, of things like uh, monotheism and polytheism yeah. and whether or not people actually believed that you know uh, Yahweh had a female consort and what that says for monotheism of the day mm-hmm. and all kinds of interesting stuff there. But probably a bunch of people believed a lot of different things in that culture. Yeah. And someone just drew a thing and, and drew God with a big dick. And that's <laughs> what it is. And um, I, I just, I, I don't think that we've changed that much. And there's something in that, if I if, find that a What uplifting. if that's like
0: the
1: equivalent of um kind of absurdist art. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And we're right and he was kind of obscure and like we're relegating it to this yeah. huge that that to me is fascinating. Well, you know,
3: I have a friend um, I have a friend and colleague who did her PhD dissertation. She's Israeli on uh, children's toys. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And items for children in the Iron Age, because a lot of times we find weird things, and we're like, I don't know what this is. It must be some religious object that was used in this cultic ceremony to Baal, and it's this, you know, strange esoteric, you know, whatever. (laughs) And like, this is a toy. It's a ball. Yeah, yeah. and look, I, I, I study religion. I'm all about esoteric religious stuff. And like at the site Tilburna that I work at, we have an area in the late Bronze Age, Canaan, that really is unique. Mm-hmm. There was something religious in some sense going on there.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: But sometimes we jump to these grandiose theoretical conclusions for <laughs> things that are fairly simple. Sometimes a rake is just a rake. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, you know. Like oh, ah, it, it leaves is. too. At Ashkelon, we had this one uh, figurine that we found. I think it was late Bronze Age, but it was just really ugly and rudimentary. We named it Gary, and uh, <laughs> and it just it didn't look like anything else. It was like it was like just really crappy. And it's like this was probably like some little kid's like action figure doll that they just made out of clay. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, like some. But but we could assign all kinds of meanings yeah. and esoteric things to it. But sometimes just look. There, ancient people had complex ideologies and religion just like we do today but mm-hmm. sometimes just take a look at the mirror and go we're not that different from them mm-hmm. I don't think we're better at all but we're we're not that different and I don't mm-hmm. think that our, our species and what we are has, has really changed much mm-hmm. in a couple thousand years Right. <laughs> basically since that Neolithic revolution that I mentioned earlier where we started farming uh, I don't think that we've changed all that much yeah.
2: still 3,000 years later we're still drawing dicks on things we're still that's what
3: we're gonna do thats, that's I'm bored here's this monument uh, here's this thing I'm gonna I'm gonna draw oh. a dick on it or write a curse word on it or, or something like that exactly you know? so, human on condition on that
0: note
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that is a fantastic time to wrap up so thank you I'm your host Beats
3: I'm your co-host Garud I'm Indiana Jones and you didn't know me